This is the Revival Leadership Podcast. Hello, friends. We are back here on the Revival Leadership Podcast, where we are helping kingdom leaders become revival leaders. We are on season four, episode three. And today, episode three. <laughs> and today we're talking about getting ready for revival. People get ready. There's a train coming. Exactly. I love talking into a microphone and how it makes my voice sound deeper than it than it actually really is. is. <laughs> so in our last episode, we talked about how even after uh, everything that was 2020, the dumpster fire inside of a garbage truck, <laughs> even after the entire world get punched in the mouth, revival is still on. And in fact, there's reason to believe that God could use 2020 and 2021. From your lips to God's ears. Yes. So there's reason to believe that God might use this season of chaos and disruption as a time of preparation and opportunity for the church to get ready for what's coming. Yeah, in other words, it's time for us, just like Noah, to build the boat, to build the ark before the flood comes. Exactly. So I'm Adam Croft. I'm an InterVarsity staff director here in Rhode Island with Greg Johnson, another InterVarsity staff, um, coming to you from our office studio in Providence. Yeah, here we are in the office, and it's it's great to be here. It's warm and cozy. Mm-hmm. It's cold outside. But today, what we want to talk about is if there is indeed, like we like we talked about last time, a tidal wave of revival that God wants to send. We want to talk about getting ready for that revival. If it's a sovereign act of God, why why would we need to get ready? Why don't we just keep sitting around, you know, binging Netflix, doom scrolling our newsfeed, eating, drinking? marrying and giving in marriage and so what have you so why do we need to get ready greg i'm glad you asked adam (laughs) that was a planned question i'm glad you asked yes (laughs) and it's an important question and in some ways it's similar asking why do we need to get ready to go to war didn't see that coming right because often uh we think of revival as something that's going to be lovely uh, a cakewalk as it were in fact i don't have you ever had a cake we had a school carnival in uh, elementary school where we literally had a cakewalk and i don't know what a cakewalk a is. cakewalk is you walk around these squares and if you if you are on the cake square when the music stops you get a cake it's a cakewalk uh, i never knew what that <laughs> phrase men yeah wow but it's revival is not a cakewalk it's not like that it's not a carnival it you know maybe we don't have clear expectations for what it will be but um but a lot of times we're not prepared for the fact that when revival comes it's almost always a hot mess why is it a hot mess because um because if you think about it revival is a spiritual war think about it like like this. So, and sorry to nerd out, a history nerd moment, but um, during the during the early 1940s, Western Europe was relatively calm, peaceful, and orderly. There were no buildings destroyed. Um, now, the only problem was that, you know, Paris and France and the Netherlands and everything was occupied by Hitler and the Nazis, but it was very peaceful, right? There was mm. no... There was no 
resistance mm-hmm. put up. There was no fighting. And so on one level, under an enemy occupation, things are relatively calm and peaceful and in good order. Um, and I'm not, I'm not saying like everything was hunky-dory. There was a lot of uh, totally, I mean, unthinkable uh, horrors that happened, but it was calm on the surface. It's only when the Allied armies attempted to take back Western Europe, when they landed on the beaches at Normandy, when they began unloading troops and tanks mm-hmm. and jumping from airplanes and, and actually started taking back occupied France and the rest of Western Europe. That's when stuff got messy. Okay, so as also a uh, fellow history major from undergrad. Oh, you were? Yeah, oh, I mean, I didn't do I anything about with that. it. But yeah. <laughs> so as long as the Allies were were content to leave Western Europe in Hitler's hands, there was no open warfare. Obviously, there was violence, and we'd never want to gloss over that. Millions of people were killed. Um, the Holocaust happened. London was bombed nightly. It was dark and evil, hard time in human history, but it all happened in a sick, twisted kind of orderly fashion. Yeah. So as a as a politics major, um, we all read Hannah Arendt, uh, who wrote The Banality of Evil. And mm. so all of this ev- evil was rather um, banal. It mm. was it was kind of uh, it was like bureaucratic evil. Mm. But once the Allies invaded Europe. It was open warfare on the Western fronts. Bombs fell, bullets flew, guns fired, soldiers died, chaos broke out. Yeah. And so we need to remember that this this is kind of a picture of revival because revival is nothing if not the taking of ground back from the enemy, the prince of the power of the air, as it says in Ephesians 2, who in many ways runs the show. Even though even though Jesus is the Lord of the world right now, the world is occupied territory and of course if you read um mere christianity this is what uh, c.s lewis talks about uh, when he was writing during wartime and so as long as you know the enemy sees the church uh is not interested in taking any ground back the enemy doesn't need to put up resistance and things stay banal calm and peaceful on the surface dark and broken underneath but only when the dominion of satan is threatened does he openly fight back and so Revival is a spiritual kind of spiritual offensive against the rulers and principalities of the heavenly realms. And in in our case, I would just submit that revival would push back against white supremacy, against secularism, against nationalism, against all isms that oppose the kingdom of God. There's probably many, a long list of them. And so I think it's it, and it's very important in this time mm-hmm. to remind when we're talking about battle or war, Paul says our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against the libs. It's not against <laughs> QAnon. It's not against Donald Trump. It's not against, you know, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. It's against, it's against the spiritual forces of evil mm-hmm. in the heavenly realms. Wow. So if we need to get ready for physical war, which we do, soldiers do, protect production lines, uh, ramp up, armies, nations, they all need to arm, train, organize. Then in the same way, you, what you're saying is we and the church need to get ready for revival, which is a spiritual war. 
Yeah, you'd never send a soldier off to fight on the front lines of battle without a weapon or ammunition or training how to use the weapon. (laughs) This is a bullet. Without giving them some kind of preparation or basic training, you would want them to understand what their mission was, mm-hmm. what their objective was, how to how to do it. Otherwise, they're they're going to be like literally shell shocked yeah. when they arrive in combat. The military actually measures something called readiness. How ready are the troops to go to war? And obviously, here we interject that on some level. Uh, neither Greg or I have ever been in combat, nor do we intend to do so. Yeah. So we don't really have much uh, expertise of what we're talking about from experience, but there are so many accounts of the extreme disorientation and emotional experience of soldiers who experience war, especially for the first time. It's a disorienting experience, terrifying experience. Yeah, and so while revival may not be terrifying, though I think it sometimes is, it's most definitely a disorienting experience. It's, It's almost always disorienting because of the nature of the breach of the status quo. And it almost always requires interpretation and leadership. And that's why, of course, like back to the military and apologies if this is not like a helpful analogy. We'll try to think of another one (laughs) later on. But, but, you know, uh, now that we're here, you know, military units have leadership. They have sergeants and lieutenants and all up the chain to orient soldiers, to instill them with courage, to remind them of their training, to model how to behave in the midst of the chaos. And ultimately, it's this leadership that makes it possible for an army to do its job and move forward and take ground. And so if the church hopes to advance when, you know, God drops the beat on revival, <laughs> you know, there when you the moment finally comes, yeah, we're all waiting, like waiting. Um, and then, you know, God hits that large red button on, on his panel that says bass drop. Um, when that moment comes, like it's going to require leaders. It's going to require folks who are ready for what they're about to face. Yeah. So again, sorry if the metaphor is not helpful. Um, we'll find another one, but good just as easily use something like a football game oh, as a metaphor. That's true. Yeah. So football game. That's true. Like you have leaders there too. You mm-hmm. got coaches, team captains to guide and lead the team in a sporting event, you know, a sporting contest as it were, whether it's soccer or football or basketball. Yep. It's uh, leadership is critical. I mean, look at Tom Brady. We just had the Super Bowl. Yeah. Can't, can't underestimate the importance of, of good leadership. Yeah. Uh, and I, I suppose there are some people that, you know, aren't into the Super Bowl, but we'll just, we'll just, we'll just mention that there's this thing called the Super Bowl and it's a, <laughs> it's a game that's the championship game. And, yeah, and, and Tom Brady, uh, is playing not for his old team, the Patriots, which won six times under his leadership, but, uh, for Tampa and, you know, not a terrible team, but wasn't anything to speak of. And, but then when Brady showed up, he provided, an incredible kind of leadership that enabled the offense to organize and ultimately to win the championship. So the point is that we need to be ready and we need to, uh, and to be ready, we need leadership. Mm -hmm. Football teams need quarterbacks and coaches and they need uh, to not wait until the night before the first game to start practicing or running drills. Yeah. How ridiculous would that be? Like, Hey, uh, we're going to start in, uh, you know, uh, September 1st, our first game. Let's practice on August 31st in the evening. I mean, that's why. Sure. Let's not do that. That's let's why not. we have a training camp, you know, and p- that's why the 
the linemen need to, you know, go on a diet and get in shape and prepare for the season. Yeah. Yeah. They, we, they, they have to be ready and get in shape. So let's get into like then when it actually looks like what kind of shape do we need to get in to, to be ready for a season of revival spiritually? And then like, how do we get there? What, what needs to actually happen to prepare Greg? Yeah. That's a, there's an interesting parable Jesus tells in Matthew 25. And it's the story of the wise and foolish virgins or, you know, wedding attendants. And, and, uh, why don't I just read it? Um, uh, Jesus says at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five, five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. And of course, uh, uh, lamps burned oil. So the wise ones, however, took oil and jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. And at midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Hey, give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, There may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready... The virgins who were ready went in with them to the wedding blanket banquet, and the door was shut. Mm. Later, the others came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. So this parable is actually about the kingdom of God coming at the, at the time of Jesus' return at the end of the age. But I suppose there are some obvious parallels here we can make to revival now. I think there are because revival is an inbreaking of God's kingdom and of God's ultimate future into the present. So whether it's revival or the second coming of Jesus, there's there's similar dynamics because Jesus kind of comes and arrives and shows up in both. And so um, when this happens, the virgins carrying the lamps, i.e., you know, us, mm-hmm. really do need to be ready for it. Yeah. A huge part of this marriage ceremony involved the procession of the bridegroom back and forth from his house to the bride's house to his house, his house. And this happened in the evening, so it was dark. So lamps were obviously an indispensable part of the whole ceremony. Yeah, the virgins needed their lamps to be burning when the bridegroom showed up. Otherwise, they couldn't participate in the ceremony. They had one job. One, <laughs> you had one job. <laughs> <laughs> back to the back to the Super Bowl for a second. My our pastor's wife, uh, did you see that text? She said no. She she doesn't know anything about football, but there's like five quotes that if you know them, you can just pretend. And one one of the quotes is when you when you hear people booing in the in the room or you at just the Super say Bowl you party, had one job. all you have to do is you say you had one job <laughs> and That'll... one job only. All your job was was to have a functioning lamp. <laughs> When Jesus shows up, you need to keep it. We got to keep it trimmed and full of oil, which was, you know, the fuel for the lamp. And so when they heard the announcement of the bridegroom coming, they needed to light a functioning lamp. And without a functioning lamp, they were out of luck. They couldn't uh, get to the oil store yeah, in time. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, and at the time of the bridegroom's coming or lesser extent, Jesus is coming in revival. The scarce resources will be time and oil. You don't have time to go out and get oil. You need to have it in your lamp. You need your flame burning when Jesus shows up. 
So you're saying that when Revival comes, because it's a lot like a mini preview of the end of the age, you need a group of people who are ready for Jesus, who have lamps burning, who have a full tank of oil, so to speak. Because yeah. if they don't have oil stored up when it's needed, they'll have to go off and find oil. And at that point, party's moved on. Yeah, and that's what the foolish virgins did. They didn't get ready. They didn't have enough oil. They wanted to borrow it from the other virgins. But the reality is that this, in the spiritual realm, you can't borrow somebody else's oil. Because ultimately, oil is kind of like your own relationship with Jesus. You have yeah. to have your own. You're responsible for your own flame. And so... Once they realized they needed the oil, it was too late. The party, as you said, moved mm. on. A wise revival leader once told me that my number one job <laughs> is to zealously guard their, your own flame and to keep it burning. Yeah. That was Greg Johnson, by the way. Yeah, and I and I heard it from someone else. I think Ryan <laughs> Pfeiffer told that to me. But what what's interesting is that before the bridegroom comes, there's actually plenty of time. There's plenty of time to go find oil and... There's plenty of oil. <laughs> if only we would take advantage of the time of this moment to prepare ourselves. The, the, there's no lack of oil if we, if we take advantage of this moment. We'll be able to participate when the bridegroom shows up and does his thing. And so revival leadership starts now. It starts today. We have to use today, right now, to store up oil and trim our wicks. In other words, we need to invest in our own relationship with Jesus right now. Yes. To fuel and fan the flame of our love for God so that it can burn brightly when others will need to see it and when God calls on us to lead. Hmm. And I suppose a lot of this happens privately uh, or in secret now, but in revival, our preparation or lack thereof will be exposed and become public, just yes. like the virgins. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of the story of Evan Roberts in Wales who God used as a, an instrument of the Welsh revival in the early 20th century. He attended a nightly prayer meeting, um, nightly prayer meetings for something like 13 years, and he wanted to be there when revival happened, and he wanted to be ready. Yeah. he. I mean, Evan Roberts was storing up oil for his lamp. It's a great illustration. And many other revival leaders have had similar stories. God used their kind of secret preparation when revival finally went big or public. Yeah. So, Greg, let's talk about how exactly do we stoke the flame of our love for God? How do we store up oil? Ask that question again. I love those words. Greg, how do we stoke the flame of our love stoke for God? The flame! <laughs> it's a great question. And I think, it, I think you know, it's important to say nothing we do changes God's love for us. So, like, when we're talking about spiritual disciplines or we're talking about practices or consecration, mm -hmm. like, none of it... This is really important to say. None of it makes us more acceptable to God. Like we, we are saved by grace. Jesus demonstrated on the cross his love for us when we were still sinners, loved us, you know, with an eternal love from before the foundations of the earth. But our relationship with God, our love for God, there are things we can do to increase the heat of that flame, the flame mm -hmm. of our love for God. Yeah, someone once said God is opposed to earning. He is not, however, opposed to effort. In other words, he wants us to seek him, and he, he likes it when we do that. And so the first thing we can do, which is pretty obvious but also hard, is to remove, is to remove any barriers between us and God, anything that's come in between us. You know, it makes me think of, like, 
at night, Sarah and I, uh, my wife and I lying in bed together. And sometimes my dog comes into the room at (laughs) four in the morning and she likes to lie in between us. And I always turn to Sarah and I I say at that point, because we're both woken up, I say, I feel like there's something in between us. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's a big dog. Yeah. A big dog. Yeah, sin in 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 our relationship with God, sin is the thing that gets in the yeah. way, and of course, it doesn't affect God's love for us, but it's it becomes a large dog or elephant <laughs> in between us, elephant in the room, known sin, known patterns of sin, and so confessing that, re- repenting, turning from it. I mean, it sounds simple, but it's crazy how mm-hmm. how it, it is such an important step in being able to grow in intimacy with God. It doesn't mean we have to be perfect, but it means we have to be honest yeah with god and we we have to surrender to god ultimately yep. we can't have idols before him so step one repentance and confession first of known sin and i suppose of any sin that is hidden from us as god reveals it psalm 139 says search me O god and know my heart try me and know my thoughts see if there's any sinful way in me which there is, probably, most likely will be, and lead me in the way everlasting. And God reveals it. We don't need to be worried about sin that, you know, the Spirit doesn't reveal or go searching our lives. But we, we, need, we when we ask God and when, we, when He reveals stuff or when we know that there's sin in our lives, then um, we confess it. And it's not once for all. It's actually a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. It's a lifestyle of... Uh, we keep short accounts with God. And then I think, you know, secondly, uh, we have to activate our will to seek God and to want more of God. And there's something important about asking Jesus for more. I think of John 5, uh, when Jesus sees the man by the pool of Siloam, and he he asks, he's been sick for 38 years. And rather than just being like, well, it makes sense. I'm just going to heal you because that's what you need. Like Jesus doesn't yeah. just force that on the man and he doesn't force, you know, renewal on our hearts. He doesn't force that. He, he asked the man, do you, do you want to get well? Um, cause there's so much more to God or our relationship with him than we've experienced, but he's not going to give it to us or force us to have it unless we want it. And he wants us to want it. He wants us to ask. Yeah. Just like Moses in Exodus 33, Moses asks God, now show me your glory. God didn't force the the revelation on Moses on the mountain. It happened in response to Moses's request. God likes it when we ask. Yeah, he does like it. And I, I think at this moment, God is waiting for us to ask him for more. And even we were praying last night uh, with my little revival prayer group that meets every Tuesday night. And um, that was a, a word that we got is that God wants to kind of, he wants us to see him more clearly. He wants us to set our, our sights higher and to realize that there's more of God than we're experiencing and to ask God. Um, and all revivals begin with that actually that kind of uh spirit the the azusa street revival is an example began with a longing among this entire group of people in los angeles to experience the holy spirit Um, in particular they wanted um, to be filled with the spirit and so they saw it in scripture they knew that they hadn't experienced it the way they wanted and so they they lingered and sought god in prayer and they, they actually stayed in this prayer meeting for weeks until um the breakthrough finally came. 
makes sense that God would want us to want more and ask for more before he gives it to us. Yeah, so we have to ask him for more. What, you know, and so the question is, what's the breakthrough of God's kingdom that you're longing for in your life or the world? And some some of us may not know, but even look inside, where's the holy where are the breadcrumbs of longing for more of any kind in your life? Whether, mm-hmm. you know, it could just be something that's really personal like, God, I want revival in my marriage or I want revival for my kids or I want I, you know, I'm longing for more uh, worship or I don't know. I want to lose weight. <laughs> I want to have a healthy, well, I want your breakthrough in my body. Like mm-hmm. where's the longing and let that be a breadcrumb. Mm-hmm. Meet God there, meet him wherever the longing starts. And then of course God can increase that longing for him in time. Hmm. So we've mentioned removing the barriers by confessing sin. And we've talked about asking God for more. What else? I think another uh, strategy is consecration. And by that, you mean setting things apart. Yeah, exactly. We can set apart um, time or space or ourselves for God to use. Mm -hmm. We can set, you know, we can set aside time for prayer. We can set aside something like food or alcohol or media to fast. It's a good thing to do in Lent to create an empty space in our lives in which we can seek God. Before Jesus began his ministry, he went off into the wilderness for 40 days to fast and pray. He set aside time and comfort and food for the Lord to prepare him for ministry. Right. And setting things aside is a way of making them available to God for his purposes. And we can also do this with ourselves. We can set ourselves aside for God and his purposes. And it it's not that God you know, can't use us if we don't do that. But again, it's the activation of our will. It's our participation. It's our yes to God that really matters to him. And Mm -hmm. he says, oh, this person is now making their life or their time or their selves available in in this way. And I don't think it really matters how it happens, but in whatever way is significant for us, we say, God, you know, I want to give this to you. I want to devote this part of my life to you. And God notices that and he honors it. So like when we first started seeking God for revival, my wife, Sarah, and I set aside our living room on Tuesday night and and really our entire Tuesday night Mm -hmm. so that anyone who wanted to come pray for revival would come. And God really used that space. Yeah, we had no idea how he's going to do it, but he did it far more than we ever could have planned. Like our, our job was to say to God, here, God, this evening is yours. Fill it, take it, use it, do something with it. It's yours now. It's a sacrifice. Yeah. Consecration is, uh, it's really essential, but it's certainly not easy. It's not easy. And if I'm honest, this is, this is the hardest part. <laughs> this is the part of revival preparation I'm not good at. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, I'm pretty bad at it. I've failed miserably at fasting more times than I care to count, but you know, God still loves me (laughs) (laughs) and I'm I'm still trusting him to see my heart and have mercy on my lack of self-control and honor the humble attempts at consecration in my life. And he, and he has, and he does, and I'm still working at it. And, you know, as we talk about getting ready for revival, of course, we have to talk about prayer. Yeah. And in reality, we've been talking about prayer obliquely all night, but right. prayer prayer really encompasses all these things we've discussed. Confession, yeah. asking for more, consecration. Yeah. But just to state the obvious, getting ready for a revival 
happens by prayer. It, it can't happen without prayer. It's true. And, you know, I think as we were planning out this series, we, we felt like talking about prayer was such a huge part of revival uh, preparation and leadership that, you know, it's not just a one episode thing. It, it's probably two, maybe three. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but at least the next episode. Yeah. So the next episode of the podcast is going to be about prayer and specifically how we build altars of prayer. How do we gather together praying communities and start prayer movements or something like that? Something like that. And it's going to rock. You're not going to want to miss it. But as we wrap this episode, I just want to come back to the fact that revival is a season that comes like a tsunami, like the bridegroom in the night. And it's a hot mess like war. And it's our job to be ready, to be prepared like the virgins who have have oil stored up for their lamps and that we get ready by confessing our sins by asking god for more by consecration setting aside our time our spaces ourselves for god to use it's so right and my friend serene your friend serene who's been on the Mm -hmm. podcast um you know we, we were sharing some of our thoughts about this this season and she had a powerful analogy that i'd like to share you know, she reminded me of speaking of oil and where do we go to get oil, you know, for our lamps and such. Give give me give me oil for my lamp, keep it burning. Bro. Give my ga- give me gas for my Ford, <laughs> keep me trucking for the Lord. No, but how do we fill up our, our lamps with oil? Uh, Serene reminded me of the story from the Old Testament during the ministry of Elisha the prophet and um, there's this widow, as you recall, has nothing left. I think she loses her husband. Uh, I don't have the reference in front of me, but you know, I'm sure you guys may have heard the story. But all she has is this jar of oil. And so Elijah tells her to go around the neighborhood and collect empty vessels from all her neighbors, um, which feels like a weird thing. Like, give me all your empty stuff. You know, mm-hmm. hey, Adam, you got any empty stuff? Yeah. Hey. Joe down the hall, you got some empty, empty places in your life. Empty, you know, where's your emptiness? Where's your lack? Where, where do you have something that, that is empty? And, um, um, and then of course, uh, and of course, um, the jars get full of oil and, Mm -hmm. and, you know, and when, once the emptiness runs out, there's no more oil, but Serene's point is like the revival leader is like that widow that goes around and asks folks, Hey, bring your empty jars to Jesus. So, cause, so he can fill them with oil. Wow. And so, you know, as we think about being ready for revival, some of you may realize you're lacking oil in your lamp. The, you know, we've all been there. The flame of your love is dwindling or it's flickered, and that's okay. You know, it says in Isaiah that uh, a smoldering wick, he will not snuff mm-hmm. out. You know, he yeah. doesn't despise our, our flickering flame or our empty oil jar. Um, but like the widow, uh, we can bring God that empty place. Say, Lord, I'm feeling, um, I'm, I'm feeling tired. I'm feeling uh, depressed. I'm feeling empty. I, I need you in this part of my life. And, and, and we can model that vulnerability for our friends to bring God our empty places. And the reality is none of us has what we need to lead in revival. <laughs> like, yeah. we don't have it. It's God. But we can bring God our need, our lack, our longing, our hunger, our thirst, and He can do something with it. So, find a buddy, um, find better yet, several, and come to God in your need and your longing. Bring Him your lack, ask Him for oil, 
ask him to help you to burn brightly to be ready. So that's it for this episode. Thanks again for listening. As always, if you found the podcast encouraging, please subscribe, like us on Facebook and Instagram, and most importantly, share the podcast with others who need to be encouraged. And come back next time as we talk about prayer.